0: Good evening. Welcome back to uh, Centerpoint, and this is um, this is the last of the lectures uh, in this particular series, uh, the Fall series on the Person uh, of Christ, and uh, we'll be uh, engaged in the work of Christ uh, in the spring, uh, February, March, and April, and uh, we'll be looking at the various. Uh, views and theories of the atonement uh, in the spring. I just received uh, today a a fairly hefty volume um, uh, in which there was a chapter by Dr Ferguson, I noticed, uh, on the doctrine of limited atonement, so I I have a couple of months to read this volume uh, before, uh, before the spring. Now, uh, as Neil has announced, uh, we'll be looking at the Book of Haggai together, uh, and by way of a Christmas-free zone uh, on Wednesday nights. Uh, there's so much Advent going on elsewhere in the in the programme in December. I thought I thought on Wednesday nights we would just have a Christmas-free zone. Uh, and uh, although uh, the story of Jesus and the coming of Jesus certainly will come uh, somewhere into the Book of Haggai for sure. Now I wanted uh, to end uh, this little section on the person of Christ uh, by addressing uh, the issue of the uniqueness of Jesus. And let me explain what I mean and and what is often meant by that term, uh, the uniqueness of Jesus. Uh, I'm referring to the, the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way of salvation. Uh, that uh, there is no salvation uh, by any other name but the name of Jesus. Now there is, uh, there is on, the, on the one hand something that we call exclusivity. And, and somewhere in the middle is something called uh, inclusivity. Uh, those who call themselves inclusive. That is to say they, they believe in Jesus and they believe that Jesus is one way Uh, to the Father, but he's one among many ways. How do you deal with a statement like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no man comes to the Father, but by me? Well, they deal with it in this way, that you don't come to the Father, but you come to Buddha, you come to uh, some other deity, call that deity whatever you want, Uh, but but in Christianity, you come to the Father, and you come to the Father through Jesus, but through other religions, you you come to the same God, but he's called something else. Those would be inclusivists. Uh, the PCUSA, for example, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, denomination in which this particular church used to belong uh, back in the early 80s, um, that that uh, denomination at its General Assemblies in recent years has had a very uh, very strong emphasis on inclusivity and uh, a doctrine of the Trinity in which, uh, in which at least one person of the Trinity was referred to by a feminine uh, name, for example. Uh, so they're not exclusivists, but they're inclusivists. Uh, and then uh, on the other extreme are what we might call Pluralists uh, and it 's the issue of pluralism, especially, uh, that I I want, us to, um, I want us to think about this evening now let 's begin with some scripture, and uh, just just two scriptures will, will uh, do the work for us. Uh, one is the, the statement I've just uh, cited the words of Jesus in uh, John fourteen in the upper room, uh, speaking to Philip. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now that's a statement of exclusivity. Uh, if you believe that there is only one God and, and that God is three-personed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Jesus is saying that we come into a living vital relationship with God as our Heavenly Father through Jesus and through Jesus alone and through no one or nothing else. And then uh, Peter and John uh, in Acts chapter 4, on the occasion in which they will be imprisoned uh, and warned not to preach anymore uh, in the name of Jesus... Uh, And it was this statement, it was the statement of exclusivity that got Peter and John into such trouble. uh, When they said, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now, uh, for um, many, many centuries, of course, the church took those verses uh, at face value. Uh, arguing for the exclusivity uh, of Jesus, the uniqueness uh, of Jesus, but we live in an entirely different world, uh, and, and we live in a post-Christian world, a post-evangelical world, uh, a post-modern world uh, where truth claims uh, are no longer acceptable, and statements like John fourteen six or Acts four twelve uh, as Understood in previous centuries, are viewed today by the majority of people as intolerant. Uh, because uh, in our day and age, uh, folk worship at the shrine of tolerance. Uh, one of the idols of our age is certainly the god of tolerance. Now, we need to uh, perhaps think about that for a second or two. What do we mean? Uh, when we talk about tolerance because critics uh, critics of biblical Christianity uh, biblical uh, or evangelical Christianity Christianity which believes the Bible to be the the revealed, written, inerrant word of God uh, they they regard uh, statements such as John 14.6 or Acts 4.12 at least as, as traditionally interpreted as thoroughly intolerant. Now, there are at least three kinds of tolerance. Uh, One is what what has been described as uh, legal tolerance. You know, fighting for equal rights. Uh, Fighting for equal rights, that all men are created equal and have uh, equal rights before the law. Um, so as to protect ethnic and religious minorities. We believe in in legal tolerance, uh, that your ethnicity uh, shouldn't in any way um, um, make it more difficult for you to to seek justice uh, in the world. Um, Scholars, sociologists, commentators on society speak of legal tolerance, they speak of social tolerance. Uh, Going out of our way to make friends um, with adherents of other faiths. We are meant to be socially tolerant. That uh, our friends may not be Christians, our friends may not share the Christian faith. If you were living in modern Europe for example or perhaps another city in the United States, uh, chances are your neighbors are not going to be uh, adherents of the Christian faith. Uh, They're going to be something else and they may be Hindu or they may be uh, Muslim or they they may be something else. They may be Rastafarian or whatever it happens to be. And uh, there, there ought to be among Christians a social tolerance. Uh, of 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 human beings who adhere to other faiths, since they are God's creation and they are made in God's image and they need the gospel. And then there is something called intellectual tolerance. And by that I mean I mean the cultivation of a mind that is so broad and open as to accommodate all views and reject none. Now G.K. Chesterton uh, once wrote that the purpose of opening the mind as of opening the mouth is to shut it again on something solid. To open the mind so wide as to keep nothing in it or out of it is not a virtue It is the vice of being feeble-minded. That was G.K. Chesterton. Uh, The question then uh, that we're asking tonight um, is a very simple one in one sense. Is Jesus the only way? Now, Alan Watts, uh, who was better known perhaps in a previous generation than, than this current generation, uh, a, a British born philosopher, social uh, critic, and many other things, emigrated to the United States, lived in California, uh, propagated uh, Zen, uh, a form of Zen Buddhism, but it was more of a, a Zen Wattsism than anything else. Um, and in which he, he, he made a journey uh, from Christianity, was a liberal form of Christianity to begin with, for sure, uh, was a candidate for the ministry and, and abandoned all of that uh, in favor of something um, that was intellectually tolerant of everything. But he found a problem as he researched other faiths, and particularly Eastern uh, faiths and, and some of you have perhaps lived among uh, those and, and worked among those uh, who have had a fascination for uh, Eastern religion. It was a craze in the 1960s, of course. Uh, the Beatles uh, devoured uh, a form of Eastern uh, religion, uh, Hare, Hare Krishna and all, all of that. You, Well, some of you, most of you, most of you remember it for sure. But he found a problem, Uh, he wrote uh, 30 or 40 books, uh, was uh, one of the princes advocating uh, a form of intellectual tolerance at the the mid-20th century wave of uh, post-modernity, and this is the problem that he found. There is not a scrap of evidence, this is Watts himself speaking, there is not a scrap of evidence that the Christian hierarchy, and he's speaking about the early church, that the Christian hierarchy was ever aware of itself as one among several lines of transmission for universal tradition. Christians did not take at all kindly to ideas that even begin to question the unique and supreme position of the historical Jesus. Christianity is a contentious faith which requires an all-or-nothing commitment to Jesus as the one and only incarnation of the Son of God. Now, this is Watt speaking. He doesn't believe this, of course, but this is what he found as he studied Christianity. And what he found was that Christianity, in his point of view, was intolerant. And it's always been intolerant. My previous discussions... Did not take proper account of that whole aspect of Christianity which is uncompromising or ornery. How do you pronounce that word? I can never say it. But you know what it means militant, rigorous, imperious, and invincibly self righteous. They did not give sufficient weight to the church's disagreeable insistence on the reality of a totally malignant spirit of cosmic evil, on everlasting damnation, on the absolute distinction between creator and creature. Those thorny and objectionable facets of Christianity cannot be shrugged off as temporary distortions or errors. Now, this is Watts saying that. Right? And this is, this is the problem that he has with Christianity. Hence his advocacy of Eastern religion, which is far more intellectually tolerant. And he is right, he is perfectly correct, he is advancing indeed the cause of biblical Christianity at that point, because biblical Christianity is intolerant at certain levels. It insists that certain things are true and certain things are untrue. That there is such a thing as truth and there is such a thing as falsity. Now let's uh, talk about pluralism. Uh, Don Carson, uh, and Don Carson doesn't write anything brief, um, and has a massive uh, volume uh, studying the whole issue of pluralism uh, in uh, the 20th, 21st century. Uh, It's called The Gagging of God. And he talks about, and in that book he talks about, three forms of pluralism. And they're useful useful, um, divisions that he makes. The first kind he talks about is something called empirical pluralism. In the sense that it's a matter of fact. You, you, You can't dispute the fact that we live in a diverse society. An increasingly diverse society. Different languages Uh, Somebody was commenting the other day and uh, I asked, you know, what what are the changes uh, that you have seen in your generation? Uh, Just living in the South, I was was trying to get, you know, I was trying to get a feel for contextualizing and ministry in the South and in Colombia and so on. And and the answer I got was Spanish. (laughs) Because now you can't go anywhere without without hearing something or reading something in Spanish. You go to the airport here in Colombia and you're going to get announcements in Spanish. It's a it's a it's a mark of the of the multicultural nature of modern America and Colombia to boot. So we live in a diverse society, languages, ethnicity, worldviews, cultures. Call them what you will. And more and more, we are losing. Um, Christianity is losing its its foothold. It's losing its moral. Stronghold in society. There's a growing fascination with the East. There's a, a, a growing fascination with Islam. Uh, people make up religion as they go along. It's like, uh, well, in, if you lived in Britain and uh, you went to uh, a certain store, there was a a place you, it would pick and mix. You you had uh, little little crates full of of candy. Different kinds of candy. I mean 50, 60, 70, 80 different kinds of candy. And uh, you'd go in there and you'd grab a few of these and a few of those and a few of those and those red ones look nice and those striped ones. And in the end you had far more candy than you'd ever want. Pick and mix, like Piccadilly, Uh, like the food line. Well, not quite this one but uh, the, the Piccadilly food line and you've got everything you can, you can imagine and you take a little bit of Chinese and a little bit of Southern and a little bit of Mexican and, and a little bit of uh, well, you know whatever uh, Robert I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, Baylor Habits of the Heart, Implications for Religion it's a famous, uh, it's a famous uh, story that he recounts he was doing some research, he was a kind of sociologist, and he came across uh, a nurse by the name of Sheila Larson. And he recounts this story. Sheila Larson is a young nurse who has received a good deal of therapy and describes her faith as Sheilaism. This suggests the logical possibility of more than 235 million American religions, one for each of us. I believe in God, Sheila says. I'm not a religious fanatic. Now, notice at once that in our culture, any strong statement of belief seems to imply fanaticism, so you have to offset that. I can't remember the last time I went to church. My faith has carried me a long way. It's Sheilaism, she said. Just my own little voice. Sheila's faith has some tenets beyond belief in God, though not many. In defining what she calls my own Sheilaism, she said, it's, it's just try to love yourself and be gentle with yourself. You know, I guess, take care of each other. I think God would want us to take care of each other. Like many others, Sheila would be willing to endorse few more specific points. Shilohism. They are neighbours. It's a little bit of this and a, a little bit of that, and whatever works. But but love yourself, love your neighbour. That's it. Well, it's all part, of course, of a post-evangelical culture that's suspicious of truth claims and more comfortable with uh, symbols and images. And perhaps some social issues affecting change through community and sharing, and it all sounds so very nice and safe. Well, empirical pluralism—you can't, you can't deny that—we we live in a, in a multi-ethnic, multicultural society, increasingly so. Uh, the second category uh, Don Carson talks about is cherished pluralism. Now, this goes beyond empirical uh, pluralism—the the, the, the fact uh, of religion—and and addresses its value. It is to welcome pluralism and to value it. Now, he cites uh, Leslie N- uh, Newbigin, uh, and, uh, and this is what he says: uh, "It has become a commonplace to say that we live in a pluralist society—not merely a society which is, in fact, plural." In the variety of cultures, religions, and lifestyles which it embraces, but pluralist in the sense that this plurality is celebrated as things to be approved and cherished right we live in a we, we live in a, in, a, in a pluralist society and and it 's a good thing it ought to be pluralist right so it 's moved from simply an observation that we live in a pluralist society to actually valuing it and cherishing it and saying it's a good thing. Phil Riken cites Marilyn Monroe as a good example of cherished pluralism. I just believe in everything a, a little bit. You know, I believe in everything a little bit. It's called the Monroe Doctrine, if you, if you uh, w- want to take it with you. We're surrounded by people who believe in everything a little bit. There's truth in everything. Truth can be found anywhere, a little bit. Of course, it's up to you to decide how much and, and, and what that little bit is. And that's Sheilaism. And then... Um, Don Carson talks about philosophical pluralism. It sometimes comes in this form, and uh, I, I cite here, but I couldn't remember where I'd read it, but Alvin Plantinger, uh, the Christian philosopher of our time, um, is, is often, is often, he, he often comes across people who say to him, you know, he's a Christian uh, raised in Grand Rapids, Dutch—that says it all—and and the accusation is that his Christianity is is merely the product of the social engineering of having been raised in in a in a Dutch Christian family in Grand Rapids. But if he had been raised in Morocco, he'd have been a Muslim. It, it's purely sociological pressure to which he responds by saying to the pluralist you know if you were born in Morocco you wouldn't be a pluralist because you would be a fundamentalist Muslim probably you know what's goose what is that expression What?" What's good for the, this is Thanksgiving. What's good for the turkey is good for the. What's the female turkey? Gander. Gander. There we go. What are we saying? We're talking about we're talking about pluralism as a as a philosophy here. I, um, that that it's a a, a socio political ideology. And this view demands pluralism. It, it, it actually refuses to allow for any other worldview, any other big picture or, or meta narrative, any, any other big picture claim to be the whole truth. Any notion, and this is Carson, any notion that a particular ideological or religious claim is intrinsically superior to another is necessarily wrong. The only absolute creed is the creed of pluralism. No religion has the right to pronounce itself right or true and others false, except, of course, the religion known as pluralism. So I've given you a picture here, if you went to Vanderbilt, just be quiet, don't don't fess up here. Um, Because this is all faith chapel in uh, Vanderbilt, massive structure. This place is for all faiths. Its dedication consists of many acts and of one. There is diversity in our unity and there is unity in our diversity as we dedicate this space and add to its light, each in a way of a distinctive tradition. Oh, how nice. (laughs) And how very pluralist. And how very postmodern. All-Faith Chapel in Vanderbilt. Now, I'm narrowing the focus a little here to religious pluralism. Um, Which actually can be traced, I think, Uh, for those who are interested to Schleimacher in the 19th uh, century Uh, but it has three um, fundamental weaknesses the first is that it has a false modesty you see it, it denounces it denounces biblical assertive truth-claiming Christianity as imperialist whereas it itself is humble because it accepts everything a little bit that no formulation of faith is final but actually it is arrogant and lacking in humility to sneer at expressions of divinely given objective truth and treat those who believe in divinely given objective truth as intellectually inferior it's a false modesty it is also I think a false charity Pluralists charge exclusivists like you and me as lacking love towards most of the world's inhabitants. But of course, they themselves can do the same about exclusivists, you understand. What's goose? No what's good for the goose is good for the gander, right? It works both ways. I'll get it in a minute. And thirdly, it's actually a false belief. Because at the heart of it, there is an assertion that all religions are essentially the same. And they are not. And they are not. And that any one of them, or all of them collectively, have anything in common with, the New, with New Testament Christianity. Actually, there is a fundamental difference between Biblical Christianity and all the world religions. Because every false religion, every unbiblical religion, has at its core a view of self-justification. That, that the, the way to salvation is by self-effort, doing. Whereas at the heart of biblical Christianity is, it's done. It's done for us. Listen to, um, listen to Jim Packer. Clearly post-Christian, post-liberal, post-Marxist and post-modern and reflecting skepticism about every world and life view from the past whether religious, philosophical, scientific or romantic today's pluralism directs that public policy be based not on public acknowledgement of universal truth and standards but on a purpose of enabling everyone to pursue personal options. Now, Jim Packer never writes sentences that are easy, <laughs> but actually I think he's got that absolutely right. Pluralism knows that the global village that we call the world is full of meta-narratives, big picture stories. That is accounts of reality that claim to make sense of the human story and to declare the meaning of human life. Every religion has one. And anti-religious viewpoints like Marxism and evolutionism have them too. Pluralism professes to tolerate and, other things being equal, to protect all these views. But it throws a dark canopy of uncommittedness over them and thus reduces them to private interests that must not be allowed to rock let alone steer the community boat this is a huge break with how things have been everywhere up to now or at least until a generation ago and what will come of it remains to be seen that's a very astute observation Of where we are just now. Now what is the Christian response to uh, pluralism? Now Christianity uh, recognizes uh, empirical pluralism. The Bible recognizes empirical pluralism. Uh, Moses writes in Egypt. Daniel writes in Babylon. Paul writes in uh, Rome all of them are reflecting that culture to some degree and addressing that culture to some degree. But of course, the the most important passage, I think, in the Bible addressing the issue of pluralism, which is not new, uh, is Acts 17 and Paul in Athens. So Acts 17, 16 through 34, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. On all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and he's quoting the poets, in him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Now... We could spend an hour or two in this passage. Let me just bring a few things uh, before you by way of uh, an example of how Paul is dealing with uh, pluralism, religious pluralism, intellectual pluralism indeed. You know, Athens is like the Oxford, Cambridge, or Harvard, Yale of uh, the first century. That's how they viewed themselves. Uh, they were the intellectual elite. At least, that's what they thought they were. And we see Paul's reaction as he walks around this great city with its history and uh, and its art and its uh, its uh, philosophy and ideas. Um, the whole of the whole of of uh, of, of the. Uh, The religious and philosophical ideals of mankind seem to be gathered in Athens, and he is provoked, verse 16, by polytheism. Now, Athens was a free city within uh, the Roman uh, Empire, and uh, promoted uh, the worship of Athena and Apollo, the city's patron, and in addition, a range of other gods, so Poseidon uh, the sea god and Demeter, the harvest goddess, and Bacchus, uh, the god of wine and energy, and, and so on. So, there, there is this multiplicity of deities. And Athens had its philosophers. There were, on the one side, uh, the Epicureans, who were committed to a a lifestyle of, of withdrawal and tranquility, unattached, free as possible from all the forms of business and trouble, including the worship of gods. So you've got the Epicureans. And then on the other hand you've got the Stoics, a stern, elitist, proud, uh, and the ultimate virtue being fortitude, strength, resilience, courage and so on. Now, it isn't clear in the passage, but it looks as though the Epicureans dismissed Paul as a babbler. Actually, the word they use is a seed picker. And the Stoics thought he was adding two gods to the pantheon of deities. One, Jesus, and the other, a goddess named Anastasis, which is the Greek word for resurrection. So they heard Paul preaching, and they heard Jesus, and they also heard something about the resurrection, and they thought this is another deity. A female deity, and Paul is summoned to the Areopagus verse nineteen claims legal right uh, to because, because that was the purpose of coming to the Areopagus to to make your claims and to be judged now some interpreting Act seventeen and, and I think mistake mis, um, um, mistakenly view. That Paul should never have done any such thing. Uh, that he was being proud and arrogant and he was trying to play the, you know, the cool philosopher hanging out you know, with the philosophers and the Areopagus. And, and God judged him by giving him few converts. Now I think that interpretation is entirely false. But, but that interpretation is out there. So what does Paul do? He begins with the polytheists and the philosophers. And, and he gives them the gospel. Now, he doesn't give them the whole gospel because he stopped. Right, A third, maybe a half of the way through what I think would have been his address, they, they howl him down. And he, and he can't continue. He, he, he begins with the doctrine of God. He goes on to the doctrine of man. He begins to talk about providence and history how the whole world from beginning to end is ordered and structured by God and and he was going to move I think into salvation and he begins to talk about Jesus and the resurrection and and so on but he he doesn't get to the end now how does he begin addressing pluralists addressing polytheists Those who believed in many and those who believed in none. Now atheism wasn't such a cool view in uh, the first century as it would be now for sure. But how does Paul begin? And he begins with a basic lesson about Christian theism. God. That there is only one God. It's it's a it's he it begins with a statement of exclusivity. There is only one God. Now already he has, he has dismissed the claim of those on the Areopagus who are polytheists. Right? There is only one God whose existence actually they acknowledge, despite their ignorance, and who will break one day into history to judge the world that's, that's, his, that's his starting point right, by their own admission they know that God exists they have an altar to the unknown God now elsewhere Paul in Romans 1 will say that every man every human being in the world knows that God exists but he holds it down in unrighteousness he suppresses that truth that, that truth The seed of religion, as Calvin said, is implanted in the hearts of every single individual. Whether they admit it or not. Every man knows more than he's prepared to admit. And this God is their creator. You see how important the doctrine of creation actually is? And how important the loss of it is? And that he is their sovereign Lord... He is infinite and omnipresent, not localized to these buildings. He's eternally self-sufficient and self-sustaining, the doctrine of aseity that we looked at last, uh, last year. And he is the source of every good thing which requires thanksgiving on our, on our part. It, it's just a statement of theism. It's a statement of the doctrine of God. And then he goes on to a basic lesson in the doctrine of man, on, uh, on anthropology the unity of the human race the sovereignty of God in human history that knowing God is the true purpose of our existence the dignity of every human being created as we are in the image of God even the Greek poets, uh, Epimenides and Aratus, uh, sources of wisdom, uh, have testified to this relationship. It is inexcusable to imagine God as an idol. But even the poets acknowledge that. And God holds us accountable for our idolatry. Remember what Calvin said in the Institutes? Man's mind is a perpetual factory. Of idols. What are these meta-narratives? What are these worldviews? What are these deities? They're idols. They're the creation of the human heart. They're idols. And then he moves on to a basic lesson in history. Actually, he didn't get very far because he was howled down. God's forbearance about our disregard fr- from him is coming to an end there is a there is a, a day of accountability there is a day of judgment coming and it's a call to repentance not to acceptance not not the Monroe Doctrine what is the Monroe Doctrine I believe in everything a little bit Right. that's not where Paul is these views that you have you need to repent of them. But you need to turn away from them. But it's a call to repentance, which in and of itself is a denial of pluralism. Philosophical and religious pluralism, because there is a day fixed in space-time history, and that's, that's addressing the Greek View of history that viewed history as cyclical, as repeating itself. And uh, Paul is uh, bringing into the picture here a Christian view, a biblical view of history, with a beginning point and an end point. And at the end point, there is a day of reckoning, a day of judgment. And the proof that this is true is the empirical, undeniable fact, truth claim of the resurrection that Jesus rose from the dead it it all hangs on that the truth of what he's saying about the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man and the doctrine of accountability and and everything in between the truth of it hangs on that truth assertion in space-time history Jesus rose from the dead so where is Paul in Athens among the pluralists? An evangelist? An evangelist? Stating with, with, with absolute conviction that there is no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved but the name of Jesus. And that what you must do if you believe in anything else you must repent of that and believe this truth because this is the only truth. And it is, it is exclusive. Now the world sees that as as intolerant. The fact that they deny us and and deny exclusivists and charge exclusivists as being intellectually inferior is in itself, of course, intolerant. Um, The religious sociologists of our time uh, when asked the question again and again uh, what is the greatest what is the greatest threat to Christianity today and they always answer pluralism uh, the, the, the notion of intellectual pluralism that uh, that you can adhere to the Marilyn Monroe Uh, view of life I believe in everything a little bit well God give us courage and love and wisdom and conviction to stand as Luther stood uh, with the doctrine of justification and say about the exclusivity of Jesus here I stand I can do no other so help me God it is the only hope for you and me and the world in which we live let's pray together Father we we thank you we thank you for the Lord Jesus your only son we thank you that though there is no salvation apart from him you have brought us to know him so that tonight we, we have a personal relationship with the only name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Father, we are surrounded by, by those and, and they're in our families and they are our siblings who believe the Monroe Doctrine because they believe in everything a little bit. And they believe ultimately in nothing. And we pray that they would come by your sovereign grace and mercy to know the truth. He who is the way, the truth, and the life. And that they might come into a saving relationship with you and be enabled to call you Abba Father through knowing that truth and confessing it. So help us, O Lord, in this postmodern world in which we live. For Jesus' sake. Amen.